coming out on the 28th, but um, the team behind the movie, I mean, they have a pretty good team. They did the Bible, uh, the Bible series, so they have a good track record. Uh, but I think it's relevant as an illustration for what we're going to talk about today, as well as something we already preached on. So I actually, this is kind of, I thought this was kind of funny. Um, I had no idea that the Son of God was coming out. I found out like maybe a week ago. And why I think that's funny is because what, what, what have I been preaching on? Like the Gospel of Mark. And specifically preaching on the life of Jesus. And the movie is, is focusing on the life of Jesus. And specifically that claim, Son of God, which is, I mean, it is the thesis, it is the main point of the Gospel of Mark. He wants to demonstrate to us that Jesus is the Son of God. So I just thought that that was kind of interesting. And I was looking uh, for what type of pieces of video they had, and they had that one, I said, well, that's perfect for what we're going to talk about today, especially as a transition from what we talked about last week. So I'm going to open this up in prayer. If you want to bow your heads with me, Father, uh, we give you worship, Lord, in our uh, behavior uh, with the, the words that are emitted from our lips. Um, Father, we pray in all of this, Lord, that our entire being may be constructed as, as it was in the garden to worship you in our words, in, uh, in our actions, Father. We pray that your spirit may dwell in full here in this building, Lord, amongst your people, uh, the church, who are all the individuals whom you have called to salvation uh, through your Son. Father, we pray that this spirit may be upon us in full and that we may be receptive and open to the word and that I, Lord, um, in meekness and humility, may proclaim that glorious gospel that is the gospel of Christ. Amen. So the central truth of today's sermon is that the character of the Son of God demonstrates his unique authority through the actions of preaching to and the healing of sinners. So some background, if you haven't been here, we've been going through the gospel of Mark, the shortest of the four uh, gospels. It's the earliest of the four gospels. And it was written by John Mark. John Mark, does anyone remember when John Mark was writing? Who is he writing for? Who is, the, who is giving him the testimony? Who is telling him what happened? Does anyone remember who that was? John Mark was writing the experience of one of the apostles. Anyone want to take a guess? Peter, Peter very good. And who did we watch? Watch Peter. What, what was, okay, this one I haven't told you guys, but what was Peter's name? What, before Jesus changed it, what was Peter's name? Okay, so then, you know, the story that we talked about with the fishing was about Peter. Very good. So our first sermon, we talked about punctuation marks. That was the introductory sermon. That was on Mark 1.1. It was one verse. Today we're going to do like the complete opposite. We did one verse in that sermon, and we specifically looked at the main claim of the Gospel of Mark, which is that Jesus is the Son of God. Then our second sermon, we used that image of the mystery novel. And that was on verses 2 to 15. And what we looked for there is that this is when we entered into the quotation punctuation marks, specifically that Jesus is going to verify his authority as the Son of God. So Mark says the book's going to be about the Son of God. And then he introduces Jesus. And Jesus fulfills these distinguishing marks that were given in the Old Testament. That's when we had that whole mystery novel. We looked back at the Old Testament and saw these type of distinguishing marks that would help us identify who the Son of God was. And one of our key passages there was, prepare the way for the Lord, John the Baptist, and Jesus is coming. And then the third sermon, the sermon that we preached last week, 
was the sermon from that video. There we preached on uh, verses 16 to 20, and specific, we used that as a launching pad to what? What did we talk about yesterday? Anyone who was there should know this. This is an easy one. All right, what did we talk about? Foot washing. Specifically what? The L word, love. And we specifically looked at the second main theme of Mark, which is what we found in that video and in that passage. And the second main theme is discipleship. Jesus calling the disciples. The incident of him calling uh, Simon, who would become Peter, to follow him. And that was in that video demonstration. And our images there was the foot washing. Or we gave a contemporary version, which was the shoe shining. And today, like I said, the first sermon we did one verse. So today we're going to attempt to do three chapters. Right? So this is going to probably be the hardest sermon because I'm going to try to cover so much. But we're going to use a smaller section at the very beginning as kind of like a guide for what happens in these other chapters. Because what we're going to see in these other chapters is Jesus is now starting. I mean, the first half of the Gospel of Mark Jesus is going to be demonstrating his authority as the Son of God. So there's all these miracles all over the place, and we're going to kind of touch upon all of them with using the framework of um, verses 21 through 28. So we're going to look at 21 through 28 in chapter 1. We're going to divide that into three segments. And the central truth of the text is that Mark wrote, Mark 1, 21 to 28, in order to introduce main characters of his gospel and to introduce main themes of the first half of the book, the demonstration of Jesus' authority. I mean, that's the main thing that you're going to see in the first half of the book, is Jesus is going to be demonstrating his authority as the Son of God, and then the second half of the book, his authority is going to be tested by all these different challengers. And why I like this part of the text is because it kind of is going to give us um, an overview of really what the rest of the book is going to be about. So, we're going to read them in the three pieces, since we have some ground to cover. And the first part of the sermon, right, we're, going to look, we're going to look at these three passages for two specific things. So, the reason why I showed a video is because, not because Hans Zimmer, who does the musical score, is like my favorite. I mean, he does amazing work. Basically, like all the great movies, he does the musical score. Military films, action films, everything. But usually in a movie, what do you got? You got characters. You got actors. Like that guy who's playing Jesus. I don't know if Jesus looked like that. You know, I wish I could look like that. Um, you know, with that flowing blonde hair. I mean, he doesn't look very, he doesn't look very Jewish. But um, the, the thing that you get is that that's an actor. And in specific, he's Portuguese. Um, which you can't really tell, right? But you have an actor. And, the, and what we're going to see in the first half of the book of Mark we're going to have a whole bunch of different characters, different actors, and they're going to be taking different actions. So today, what we're going to look for in our text is we're going to look and say, well, who are the characters of the Gospel of Mark? Who are the characters? And in specific, not only who are the characters, but what actions are they taking? So if you want to look at me, the first character we're going to look at is one we've already treated, which is the Son of God. And this we're going to see in verses 21 to 22. So, verse 21, if you want to read with me. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, and not as the scribes. So first we're going to look at the action here of the Son of God. So in some former passages, before we got here, 
what type of actions was the Son of God taking? What type of actions did the Son of God do before this passage? What did he do? He called his disciples. Very good. What did he do right before that? Literally right before that passage, what did he do? He started his ministry, and how does he start his ministry? Yes. So the first thing Jesus does to begin his ministry in the Gospel of Mark is he proclaims the Gospel of God. And specifically, when he proclaims the Gospel of God in that verse, it says that he basically announces that it is time, the kingdom is here, repent and believe. That is him summarizing the Gospel for us in uh, chapter 1. Uh, verses um, 14 to 15. So, in our text here, we're going to be looking between chapter. We're going to be looking between uh, chapter one, verse 21, where we're at now, all the way to chapter three, verse um, verse 12. I mean, we'll, we'll get there. But basically, all three of these chapters, what we're seeing is all these miracles, all these actions being part- uh, being performed. Uh, by Jesus. So some of the actions that he performs, some of the actions that the Son of God performs is that we see before he proclaims the gospel, and then in verse 21, it says, and they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was what? He was teaching. All right. Verses 38 to 39. And he said to them, let us go to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he also and he, and he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. So what was he doing there? He's preaching. So he's teaching. He's preaching. And now in chapter two, verse two, and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word of God with them. And as you would guess, in verse thirteen of the second chapter, he went out again beside the sea, and all the crowds was coming to him, and he was teaching them. So teaching is a very important part of Jesus' ministry. And one of the reasons why this is so important to acknowledge from the very beginning, I mean, first of all, when Jesus starts his ministry, Mark tells us, he starts proclaiming the gospel. The reason why this is so important is because most of the time when people think of the Son of God, when they think of Jesus, what do they think of? I mean, they think of all the things that he did. In specific, like that video, when he's pulling up the fish, They think of all the awesome things that Jesus was doing. And they may tend to separate that from his teaching. But what we see in here is that the action, Jesus' main reason for coming is to proclaim a gospel. To teach something. And then the actions reinforce the teaching. Not that the teachings reinforce, uh, not that the the actions, uh, the teaching reinforces the actions. So what we see here, and the reason why I point out those verses, and again, you still don't have context for what's going on in these verses, but what I want you guys to see is that at the forefront is this main theme of teaching, preaching, proclaiming, the gospel. So let's look at the character of who this teacher is. So same thing as before. We know that this is the Son of God. What was some of the stuff before where we're at? What was some of the stuff before that told us about this character? I mean, what kind of marks did he have? Remember that we had that... That discussion about the distinguishing marks. What kind of marks did he have? Who was he? He was the son of God. What does that mean? The son of God. 
Well, we had those passages in Isaiah that talked about you know, the Son of God. But in specific, with John the Baptist, what did the whole John the Baptist story tell us about Jesus? Who was he? Who was, who was, uh, who was the person in the wilderness who was going to prepare the way for who? The Messiah, Yahweh. I mean, specifically in that, in that verse that's cited, it says that the person will prepare the way for Yahweh, for Jehovah. And then Jesus comes up, and Jesus is like, yes, this, you know, this prophecy belongs to me. So we already see that this character has some really unique, you know, he has a really unique identity. I mean, he's the son of God, and he claims, he's claiming to be the Messiah, but in specific, he has some profound divine type of authority that we're going to see him practice all throughout. So in here, just to give you a description, just like I did this wide, you know, survey of teaching, 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 so you could just see, get the idea that that's an important theme. Here's some other things that happen in these different incidents that tell us about the character of the Son of God. So at the end uh, of our section around verse 20, well, in the middle, around verse 24, a demon who Jesus is going to be expelling looks to him and says, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. In verses 23 through 35... We see that he has powers over the demons. So Jesus has this power over the demons. And they even identify who he is. In chapter 2, verses 5 to 7 and 9 through 11, we see Jesus forgiving sins. Which is something in the Old Testament only God could do. Only God could forgive sins. In verse 8, chapter 2, we see him reading thoughts. He's reading the thoughts of his opponents. And literally, like answering their questions before they ever even ask them, basically saying, oh, I know what you guys are thinking. And, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then in chapter 2, verses 19 to 20, he calls himself the bridegroom, which is a reference to Daniel there, where only God calls himself the bridegroom. And then in chapter 2, verse 28, this is one we touched upon. Jesus calls himself the Lord of the Sabbath. Remember that Sabbath sermon that I preached about true rest? And it was a big deal to violate the Sabbath? What was the punishment for violating the Sabbath? Right? You got executed. So here comes Jesus in an incident where they're questioning the disciples picking up uh, gra- uh, uh, gr- like grains of wheat. And as he's picking up the grains of wheat, the, the Pharisees, the scribes are like, hey, you're violating the Sabbath. You're working. And then he points to the example of David. And then to make it even worse at the end, he goes to this story about David eating the, the bread in the presence. He calls himself the Lord of the Sabbath. The Lord of the Sabbath? The curios of the Sabbath? I mean, that's a big, big claim. And then I think that this is how Mark shaped this text, is he begins the text in verse 24 with the demon that Jesus is trying to expel. That, that demon looks to him and calls him the Holy One of God. And then at the end of this three-chapter section, in verse 11, you have a demon who Jesus is expelling, and the, and the demon says, you are the Son of God. So we have, so far we, we have in, in, in this section, we have John the Baptist you know, recognizing his divinity, right? Re- recognizing him as the Son of God. We have the, the baptism of Jesus, and when Jesus is baptized, what does the voice from heaven say? This is my Son. And then we have demons recognizing that he is the Son of God. And this is a pattern, an intentional pattern that's going to, open up more and more as we go on and people acknowledge who he is. So what we see then is we see two things. We see that we have this, this character, and this character is attributing the prophecies of Yahweh to himself. 
He's, you know, he's exercising demons. He is performing these miraculous miracles that we're going to talk about next. And he has this authority, not only in teaching, which is what those, you know, uh, what, what those first references were, not only in teaching, but in his very character and what he's doing. So, main points with him is this actor, the Son of God, is primarily concerned with preaching. And as for his character, it's this unique authority. So, the second uh, part of our text is verses 23 to 26. And this second part of the sermon is, is to identify the character of the sinners. So, this is a character we haven't been introduced to yet. What characters have we been introduced to so far in the book of Mark? John the Baptist... We have the Son of God, Jesus. We've already talked about him. We have the disciples, exactly. So that's one character that we're not going to talk about in this, in this sermon, are the, are the servants. We'll mention them towards the end as it re- results to you guys. But we've talked about the disciples, the ones who have been marked. I call them the servants. So we talked about the Savior, the Son of God. We talked about the servants. And now we talk about the sinners. Now here we have, with the beginning of his ministry, a whole bunch of different people coming to him. But before we get to them, let's look at verse 23 to 26. This is what we read. So, we have Jesus coming into the synagogue. He starts teaching with authority. And then as he begins to teach with authority, and people are recognizing he has an authority that the scribes, the Pharisees, don't, this is what happens. And immediately, there's that word again. It was also in the former text. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. So here we're introduced to this man. And what is the, the, the term used to describe him? He's in this state of being unclean because of this spirit he's possessed. And that word unclean is really, really important at the canonical level, like, you know, understanding the Old Testament, the New Testament, because they had a whole bunch of laws in the Old Testament about what? Being pure and being clean. So here we have this man who has this spirit. But it's the idea of the unclean that's going to permeate these three chapters. Because we're going to be, I mean, we don't have time to treat them all. I mean, we could have packed ten sermons out of just these three chapters, but we, I kind of just want to give you guys a taste of what's happening because there's going to be all these other type of stories that are similar um, you know, as, as we continue forward. But some of the characters, besides this unclean man who is possessed, um, in verses 21 to 28, in verses 29 to 34, we have Peter's mother-in-law, who's sick. It's, I, I think it's kind of funny. I mean, at least from an American context, this would be kind of funny because of, like, the stereotype of, like, the mother-in-law. And it's like Jesus goes from, a, you know, a man that's possessed with an unclean spirit to a sick mother-in-law. All right. But he goes and he's introduced to this mother-in-law who is sick and she's running a fever. And he performs this miraculous action. Then we get in verses 40 to 45 in chapter 1, we get the leper. The one who is also unclean physically because he has a skin disease. This is probably my favorite passage in, in, in the three chapters. Then we have in chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, we have the paralytic. The handicapped. The handicap. And then in verses 13 to 17 of chapter 2, we have one that I'm sure everyone can understand as being unclean. We have the tax collectors. I love it how they get their own designation. 
even back then, nobody liked the IRS. Nobody liked the tax man. They were unclean. So it's funny because the passage identifies sinners and tax collectors. As if like being a tax collector is its own level of sin. But what we do have in there is we have the story of Jesus calling another disciple. Same type of response. Telling Levi, follow me, the tax collector. And then Jesus goes and he eats in their company. And then another character that we have is the man with a withered hand in chapters 3, uh, verse 1 through 6. So we've got basically a picture of... I mean, I didn't want to go into some of, I mean, the Old Testament prophecies, but there's, I mean, all over the Old Testament you have these prophecies about the Messiah who would come to bring, you know, uh, vision to the blind, uh, to heal the mute and the, and the lame and the disabled. But what we have here is we have a picture of the needy. We have a picture of the unclean because uh, from their understanding, the reason these people were like this was because maybe they did something in their life that deserved it so that they were unclean and now... I mean, it's not just like you had to suffer being handicapped. You were out of society. You were on the fringes. I mean, you are not in this circle of, uh, of, of society anymore. You are on the fringe. And I got an illustration that I think kind of will convey that really well at, at the end of the sermon. But what we want to understand here is just like this man with the, with, with the spirit, we have all these characters that are unclean. And it's important that Jesus is going to these individuals. So our character... Our, our, our character here are the sinners. The sinners, these unclean sinners. And the action from these unclean sinners isn't necessarily, you know, something that they're going out and doing. It's something that Jesus does to them. So, the action is healing. So we notice this is an interesting pattern. And I think this is a significant pattern. One, I wanted to affirm that what Jesus is primarily concerned about is preaching the gospel. That's number one. That is essential. The gospel of grace. But whenever he preaches the gospel, I mean, we see this in the structure of the text. And a lot of people will go and say that Mark doesn't really have structure. He kind of just throws things in there. But what we see that Mark is doing is Mark will position, you can go to the next slide, he'll position teaching, and then right after teaching will follow an episode of healing. Teaching, healing. So, that, the first example there in verse 21, this is how we started the sermon. This is, our, this is our text. This is where he walks into the synagogue and he starts teaching with authority. But then right after he teaches with authority, what does he do? He heals the man with the unclean spirit. He tells him, get out of him. It's called an imperative. I love imperatives. Imperative is like when you tell someone to do something. You don't even use their name. You don't say, Leonard, can you pick up the ball? No, it, you know, if, when my daughter's about to stick her finger in the electrical outlet, what do I tell her? I tell her, stop. I don't go, Charlotte Ann, A. Goanaga, you better not stick your finger in there. No, I give her the imperative with force, the type of force that causes her to cry, and then I feel miserable after. But, we, but here we see Jesus giving him the imperative, giving the spirit the imperative, come out of him. And then in verses 28 through 39, we have another episode here. This is uh, where Jesus goes off to, de he departs so that he can pray and have, and have communion with the Father. But then right after this episode, and Jesus is saying, you know, I got to do this because I got to get ready to preach all, all over the place in Galilee. Right after this is, is, my favorite, is my favorite story of the passage, which is the cleansing of the leper. So if you got your Bible and you want to read with me, verses uh, 40 to 42 in chapter 1, or you can just listen, it reads... 
as follows. And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. And what's one of the reasons that's so remarkable to me about this passage is given the context of unclean, Jesus doesn't simply tell him, okay, you're healed. I mean, Jesus could have, by word alone, we just saw with this passage, come out of him. Jesus could have literally just said, be healed. But what does Jesus do? What does Jesus do? He's teaching. He's teaching the preceding passage. But even this, even this action is him teaching us something. What does he do? He touches him. He touches the leper. You do not touch the leper. I mean, have you guys ever met like someone who has a disease or something like that? Like mono or something? I mean, that, you don't touch the guy, right? You don't touch him because you're going to get sick. But for them, it's even more serious because we're not talking about like, you know, some disease. We're talking about like spiritual, being spiritually unclean. But Jesus feels pity for him so bad. And Jesus is the one clean one. Remember the Paschal lamb? The unblemished lamb that Jesus touches the leper. But then he also uses the imperative. He touches him and he says, be clean. Next passage, this is uh, chapter 2, verse 2. This is the episode of Jesus healing the paralytic. This one is probably pretty familiar to you guys. He's in a room teaching, maybe like 50 people. And then like four guys and their friend who's a paralytic decide, hey, Jesus is healing people. We got to get our friend healed. Does anyone remember how they attempt to get him healed, what they do? Yeah, so back then the roofs were made from like clay and maybe like you know, other organic material. And they were literally like digging through this clay. Maybe they were putting aside some tiles, some clay tiles, so that they can drop this guy in the middle of the room. Could you imagine if you own that house? What? Are you, are you kidding me? You know, what are you doing? But here we have another example here of this faith. And, and this pattern, I think, is pretty, you know, pretty important, that they're coming at him with the faith that Jesus can, can heal. And then when Jesus sees the faith, he sees the faith, they, they become healed. But what we have is Jesus is in their teaching, and then they descend this man, and we have, we have him, um, him healing them. And then one more, one more example. This is uh, the incident there with, with the, uh, the tax collectors and the sinners. So, you know, to put it in context... Jesus is there by the Sea of Galilee. He's actually, because he's, he, this is ministry all over Galilee. That was where that part of the film was depicting, to kind of give you like a visual of what's going on. Jesus is going, and he goes up to this tax collector, who his post, I love this, this is something you would oversee, but his post is by the Sea of Galilee, Galilee which probably meant that this was the tax collector of the fishers, of the fishermen. I mean, this was probably the guy who was collecting the taxes from the fishermen, so you can only imagine, you know, uh, Simon Peter, how he felt about this. Are you serious? You can call that guy to be a disciple? Are you serious? The guy is the one who always took my money. And, and one of the reasons they hated them is because when they took the money, they took the taxes, they took a little off the top, you know, that they would charge you. But what, what we have in this scenario is we have Jesus is there, and he calls him to be a disciple, and then he stays with them. And hospitality is really, really big back then. He stays and he you know, has supper with them, and he reclines on the couch, which was a sign of, uh, of you know, intimacy with this audience. And the Pharisees go and they're going to challenge him on this. But we see here again, Jesus is going 
and he's you know, going to where the unclean people are. You know, the Lamb of God is going to where the unclean people are. And here we have him teaching. It starts with him teaching. But we don't have an imperative here. What we have here is the next character that we're going to move to right now. We have them critiquing Jesus. And Jesus responds with this passage about, you know, it's the sick people who need a physician. It's the sick who need a physician. He didn't come for the righteous. He came for the sinners. And that's a good transition because that leads us now to our next character. So, so far we have two characters. We have three. One we're not going to treat because we treated him in the last sermon. What was the character we treated in the last sermon? Who, in, in the sermon before, who did we treat? Who is, the first, who is this character in our, in our, uh, our epic here, our movie? Who's the disciples. Or the, if we're going to put an S in there, the servants. The marked ones. Ones who've been marked by Christ. So today, our first character was who? The, who, is, who is our first character? The Son of God, yes. Who is our next character? The who? I can't hear you. Peter, we're putting Peter with the disciples. But who did we just finish talking about? The sinners, the guys who are unclean, but they're recognizing that they're unclean because who do they go to? They go to Jesus for healing. And then that last passage that we looked at was kind of hinting towards, I mean, any good story has to have what? You've got to have what? An antagonist. You have to have an antagonist. I mean, that's like 101 to storytelling. There has to be some type of conflict. Trust me, in my, in my work, you know, uh, po- uh, politics, I mean, it's built upon conflict. Media is built upon conflict. Getting a story, you know, in, in a news cycle is built upon finding, well, what, you know, kind of conflict can we play off of? But what we, hear, what we see here is these people questioning Jesus. I had to find another S. You know, we have son of God. We have servants, you know, the disciples, the fishermen. And we have the sinners. I had to find another S. And I think this one works really well. Uh, this, I call the next character, this, the sedition, uh, seditionist. Right. What, so what is, what is sedition? I always get nervous because I want to say sedationist. Like, no, maybe we have some sedationists here in this church because they sedate people before they go into surgery. But what is sedition? What is someone who, who what does that mean, sedition? Rebel, rebel exactly. Uh, someone who is a seditionist is someone who is rebelling against a legitimate authority, specifically a legitimate government. Right? So it's like rebel, but kind of like a, a negative connotation. You're, you're rebelling against legitimate authority. Whereas a rebel can be rebelling against you know, um, non-legitimate authority. But here, this is our final two verses for our passage. And it reads as follows, if you want to read with me. This is about the character of the seditionist. Mark chapter 1, verse 27 to 28. And they were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. So our first character, this is now, now looking at our, our chunk, our passage. Our first character was the Son of God. He comes in and he's teaching in the synagogue. This is Galilee. So he comes in, he's teaching in the synagogue, and as he's teaching... What happens? This man comes up and he what? He's possessed. 
Could you imagine, like, if I'm, like, right now, if I'm preaching and all of a sudden some possessed person comes in, right? Everyone runs out of the building. Ah! Right? No, but he's here teaching in the synagogue. He's teaching with authority. People are like, man, this guy's amazing. And then all of a sudden this possessed guy comes in, and Jesus is like, you, be quiet. Get out of him. Bam. But here we have a picture of the unclean man. You know, usually these type of people, they would just be ignored, cast off to the fringe of society. We have the sinner. And then now here we have these people who are questioning. And at the beginning here, it's hard to even tell. I mean, what they're doing doesn't really seem bad. We don't have enough information. We just see that they're questioning. Like, who is this guy? But as the passages evolve, specifically towards the second half of the book, that's when they're going to start their attack. But here what we see is when they start questioning. They see the authority and they start questioning. In my mind, Mark is doing this as kind of like he's foreshadowing what we find in, in, in the, other, the other two following chapters. So that word they, they question. We'll look at they. So you can go to the next slide. This is some of the people who I saw as the they, who I'm, who I'm seeing as like the people that were questioning, rebelling. You have the demons. I mean, they're all throughout those three chapters. Jesus is, is expelling, you know, he's exercising these demons. And, you know, you have them identifying who he is. They know exactly who Jesus is. And they're trying to tell people as if to try to undermine his ministry. And Jesus is like, no, you, be quiet. And then we also have the Pharisees and the scribes. And they, uh, as the passages continue, you know, more and more, they begin to become more and more vocal. And in specific, the, if we were to, those, those, uh, those three chapters, right, that we're looking at, if we were to kind of like cut them in half, the first half is teaching healing, teaching, healing, teaching, healing. And then towards the end of that pattern is where we have the, um, the people saying, hey, why are you eating with sinners? And that introduces the second half, and the second half is where this, this, these characters are going to question Jesus in five areas in specific. And the type of people that are questioning, we have the demons, we have the Pharisees, we have at one point the people who are asking him, hey, why are you doing this? But then we also have uh, the word Sabbath and synagogue. Now, Sabbath and synagogue are not questioning Jesus, but I think Mark puts that because he wants us to understand that this is happening. I mean, the section opens up with him teaching on the Sabbath. It's going to close with them questioning him on the Sabbath, and this is happening in a synagogue. So I think that's just something to keep, keep in mind. So the they, we have this additionist, these they, the people who are questioning, and they start questioning in, in verse 27 and 28, but as the text goes on in those three chapters, their questioning becomes more, more intense. And here's some examples. They specifically challenge Jesus, on the next slide, in five ways. So remember that story where they dug the hole through, through the, the roof and they descend their friend? Does anyone remember how that story plays out? Jesus basically is, he says that he's going to heal this guy, but he also is going to forgive him of sin. He's going to forgive him of his sins. And, and you, know, you can see here the context, the, 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 fair, the, the, conf, the, you know, the Jewish-type context, because we have those, um, the they, the seditionists, these rebels, the Pharisees, we have them in this scene, and how do they respond when Jesus says he's going to forgive sins? How do they respond? What do they say? They say, only God can forgive sins. So they say, only God can forgive sins. You're committing blasphemy, and what's the penalty for blasphemy? So now you can understand where, why they essentially get to the, 
to the crucifixion. But what we have here is them saying only God can forgive sins. And how does Jesus then respond? Well, what do you think, what do you think is easier, to tell someone that their sins are forgiven or to tell them, to tell this man who's been handicapped to pick up his role and to walk? And, and Jesus here is using some irony. Because if I were to ask, well, what is easier? Is it easier for me to tell someone that their sins are forgiven, or is it easier for, them, for me to tell them if they're handicapped to get out of their wheelchair and to walk outside? Which is easier? Well, the first one is easier in a sense. It's way easier for me to tell someone, hey, your sins are forgiven, than to me to tell them, get up out of your wheelchair and walk. But for Jesus, this is kind of a usage of irony, because in reality, it is harder to tell someone that their sins are forgiven, because I can't forgive sins, because I'm not who? So when Jesus is saying this, it's almost as if he's making this remark to the Pharisees and saying, listen, all right, yeah, you're saying I'm committing blasphemy. Let me prove the point. In other words, it's easier to say that your sins are forgiven, but I'm still going to tell this guy to stand up and walk. I'm going to heal this guy miraculously to confirm that I am able to forgive sins. And that's exactly what happens with that imperative. Get up and walk. And he does, and then he turns to the Pharisees and he's like, what? And what? Yeah. Our next example is where he's eating with sinners. He's eating with the sinners and the tax collectors. So their specific question here is like, hey, how can you go and eat with these unclean people? You know, you're there reclining with them, participating at the table with them. These unclean tax collecting sinners. And Jesus' response is, it's not the sick. I mean, it's, it's, it's the sick who need a doctor. It's not the righteous. I came here for the sinners. And then we have our next example in chapter 2, verses 18 to 22, which is a question on fasting. And what happens there is they come up uh, to Jesus and they see that his disciples are not fasting. And Jesus responds with this whole, you know, well, my disciples don't need to fast because they're with the bridegroom. They, they're going to fast when I'm not here any longer, but I'm here. And that's a, another reference there to his deity. A fourth example where they question him is in chapter 2, verses 23 and 28, and this is where the disciples are hungry. So they're going out in the field and picking up the grain, and they're eating the grain. And again, you know, they, these, these uh, dissenters come up to him, and they're like, hey, they're working on the Sabbath. And Jesus points to David and basically makes this claim, hey, the Sabbath uh, was made for man, not, you know, not man for the Sabbath, and I am the Lord of Sabbath. A third claim there to divinity right in their face. You can understand how angry they're getting at this point. And then we have another Sabbath episode. It opens with the Sabbath, it opens with Jesus teaching on the Sabbath, and it closes with him teaching and healing on the Sabbath. And in specific, the scenario here is that man with the withered hand. And Jesus, ah, I mean, this is one of those examples where Jesus gets angry. There's few places in the New Testament where Jesus gets righteously you know, legitimately angry. And what happens here is we have this man with a withered hand who's coming to Jesus to get healed. And the Pharisees are trying to trap him. They're trying to trap him. Uh, the, the Greek word there is to build a case of evidence. And Jesus turns to them and says, what? I, I mean, are you going to tell me? Let me ask you, is it, is it right to heal on the Sabbath? And their response is they just stay quiet because they know if they answered according to their Fair, you know, they're, they're fair, the, the rules that they had compiled, the, the Pharisees' rules, not the law of the Old Testament, but the, the customs that they had created, the religion that they had created, that they would violate it if they agree with him. And Jesus just gets, he's just, you know, gets angry at them and, and tells them of the hardness of their hearts and ends up healing this man. 
So what we have here with these characters, these seditionists, is that, you know, specifically in the Pharisees, they're trying to trip Jesus up. They're questioning his authority. And the way that Jesus responds, they're questioning his teaching. The way that Jesus responds is with these miraculous works. The result of this, at the end of our verse, we have, and at once his fame spread everywhere throughout the surrounding region of Galilee. These three chapters close in verse 11 with the demon recognizing that he's the son of God and then this great crowd falling. So basically where we begin is we begin with Jesus' teaching, his healing. You know, these two go together. Then we have the next character, which are these sinners who are coming to the son of God to be healed. And then we have these seditionists who are rebelling against the authority of God. So we have those three characters. Well, the, the fourth character is the servants that we, we preached about last week, the, uh, the disciples. So the observation here, let's put ourselves in the uh, semantic, semantic uh, mentality. Because did you guys see me in that? Did you, when you watched the, the, that, that scene, did you guys see me in there? I was in there. You guys didn't see me? I was in that film. I'm serious. Exactly. I was one of those fish. That was one of me. I mean, that was me. I was in there. I was one of those fish. So we have, that was me. I'm, I'm, I'm that servant, right? But I had to cross out the character of the Son of God. Why? Because if I ask you the question, which character are you? This is what, the reason why we looked at characters and actions. Because Mark's setting a plot up for us. He's introducing the characters. I'm definitely not the Son of God. I know that. Although, the Bible does say that, you know, these rebels... I mean, they're, I mean, what, what, what was Eve's sin? She wanted to what? She wanted to be like God. So the second one is kind of ironic because that's kind of like the state that they're all in where we're our own prophet, Messiah, king. But I assure you, nobody in here is the son of God because I did not see you descend from the heavens on a cloud. <laughs> Regardless of what kind of car you drive, I don't care how smooth it is. But then we also have this character, the sinner's, and then we have the rebels, the seditionists. So I'm going to ask you this question then. You know, which I identified who I am. I'm one of those fish. Not because I smell. Um, but because you know, the Lord used the, the apostles and their disciples to reach me. But another way that, to help you identify what character you are is to identify what actions are you performing on this stage. Because that's the wonderful thing about the gospel is as you're reading this, I mean, you're really participating in this narrative to, uh, you know, to a supernatural degree, where you're reading and Scripture through the, you know, through the Holy Spirit is speaking to you. So what kind of character are you? We can look at three actions. This kind of gives you an idea of where you're at. So the first action, we saw the actions that these individuals took. So the first stage, this is um, the action of the, uh, the rebels, the seditionists, and specifically what's their action? They're rebelling against the kingdom of God, right? And, and I thought this was pretty cool that I, I was reminded of when Jesus preached his gospel. He preached it in one sentence. Wouldn't you like it if I could preach every sermon in just one sentence? Be a long sentence. But he preaches the gospel in one sentence, and he begins his preaching of the gospel. Let me pull that, let me pull that verse up. That's uh, verse 14 to 15 in chapter 1. When Jesus begins his ministry... It reads, now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. 
as if to tell anyone that's in this room or in the world that is in that position of Eve where they have fooled themselves into thinking that they can be like God, where they can pursue their own path, where they can pursue some type of path outside you know, uh, submission to God, outside of true freedom because they want to be free. We have these rebels, and the first thing Jesus does when he proclaims his gospel is he says, listen, the time is at hand and the kingdom of God is near. In other words, he's speaking to those rebels, those people who are rebelling against the very kingdom, the sovereign rule of God, and he's telling them, listen, you guys, your time's up. I'm here. You know, stop your phony kingdoms. And, you know, we can never really uh, empathize with this type of character because nobody ever wants to identify with being the antagonist. But the scary thing of Scripture is, and by all means, it is pretty scary, is that, as Ephesians 2 says, we are all enemies of God before we've been saved by Christ. We're all in that position that Eve was, where we are rebels. We are rebels against a holy God in our sin. And that's a really hard thing to digest. But there's a reason why that's the first thing that Jesus is talking about in announcing the kingdom, is because if you don't identify who the ruler is, and if you don't identify the need to be saved, then what's the gospel going to mean to you? I mean, it's not going to be really good news if you're already thinking that you're, you know, you got the goods. You got what they're, you know, all that you need. So this is the position here of everyone prior to salvation. Everyone is in this same exact boat. This is the position of all religions of the world that try to earn salvation through merit. This is that same position. They're rebelling against the grace of God by saying, no, 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 we can do it. And then based upon what we do, based upon how good we are, then you can grant us merit and salvation. The second group are the sinners. Here I think of when Jesus is proclaiming his gospel and after he announces that the kingdom of God is at hand, he says, repent and believe in the gospel. These are people who by the conviction of the Holy Spirit know that they are sinners, know that they are unclean. And the reason why this text, this character is also hard for us to identify with is because we don't like to see ourselves as the leper or the unclean or the man with the withered hand some of us like to be seen as a stepmother. Maybe that's an exception. But the idea there is that we don't want to be seen in this position of the one in need of being saved as the unclean one. But the ones that do recognize their sin, that do recognize their unclean, that do recognize their, their spiritual disease, when they turn to Jesus, how does Jesus respond? He touches them. He looks upon them with pity and says, you know, I will be clean. And then the third one is those fish that were pulled up. This is the one that we didn't treat. This is the character of the servants. We treated them last week, and this is the disciples. And the theme throughout the entire Bible really is to, to love the Lord your God and to love your neighbor as you love yourself. And this is how you can know if you're in this position. One is recall Jesus' pattern. He taught, and then he healed. Recall the teaching of salvation by grace through, through Christ, right? That salvation comes through Christ. But in specific, the way that you know, how can I tell that you have the mark of a servant? What is the mark of a servant? What is the mark of a disciple of Christ? What was the mark we talked about last week? Love. So it's almost as if, I mean, a disciple is a follower of Christ. And essentially, what is the disciple supposed to do to love the Lord your God and to love your neighbor as yourself? And how does he do that? Well, he copies the pattern that we saw with Jesus and we saw throughout our text, which is teaching 
and healing. So in terms of teaching, I mean, we got such wonderful opportunities here as this church. I mean, just the other week, I had some intern, and I asked this intern, hey, do you go to NC State? He's like, yeah, I do. I was like, oh, really? Are you part of the Baptist Collegiate Ministries there? Like, what a random thing to ask someone. He's like, yeah, actually, I just so happen to be the worship director. I'm like, oh, that's amazing. You know, did you know that my church is at the very corner of the campus, and we have a building throughout the week, and we have this wonderful opportunity where, you know, we have resources that we can help. And he's like, well, that, you know, it's so interesting that you, t- that you tell me that because I just found out in December that the convention's cutting off support for Baptist Collegiate Ministries because they want churches to take that responsibility, local churches. I'm like, well, I thought of that and I thought of uh, the prayer request we had two weeks ago in regards to the young people, and I put one and one together. But there's an opportunity there to proclaim the gospel to a place where, the enti- where all the nations collect and gather. And there's already there an opportunity and a need. So there's there the responsibility of teaching, loving God through proclaiming the truth, as Jesus did. But then there's also the responsibility of loving the neighbor. And in specific, I love the imagery of, of touch. Um, not, be, not because simply because I come from a, a background as a Hispanic where we touch a lot. Right? I made the mistake of kissing girls on the cheek whenever I met them up here in the South. Don't do that. Um, But when my father comes up here, I am hugging my father, rubbing my father, kissing my father. The reason I kiss my hand every time I pray is because I kiss my earthly father, I kiss my heavenly father. But there's something about touch, especially as a guy. Guys don't really touch each other, but when a guy gives another guy a hug, that embrace, you know, the masculine display of affection, there's just something, you know, wonderful about that. And here we have a gospel that calls us to move past social boundaries and to touch people who are sick and dying, sinfully or physically, and to care for them in all of their complete humanity. And the one image that I always think about um, as a good illustration of the unclean is, is, I mean, I'm I'm in a Filipino church, and I've heard the horror stories of the street kids in the Philippines. I did not know the scale that there's over 1.5 million of them, um, and that the degree of them, the percentage of them who, you know, sleep on the streets, so it's about 15 to 20%, about 70% of them, you know, work long hours on the street and then go back to their homes. But one of the craziest things is I was, I remember this viral video came out and they wanted to catch uh, uh, pedophiles. You guys ever, you ever see that video? They came out with a video where they wanted to catch pedophiles. You know what a pedophile is, right? Um, and this is one of the reasons I hate pornography is because this, you know, this, this is the type of behavior that pornography produces in terms of lust. But they wanted to catch pedophiles. So what they did is they created a virtual girl, girl from the Philippines, like a vir- like computer animated girl from the Philippines, to talk on a camera with these guys and to catch them and to grab their, their information. But did you know that 18% of those 1.5 million kids have STDs because... You know, they're brought into sexual slavery um, to feed the type of addictions from Americans. I mean, there have even been crises over there with soldiers, you know, being serviced by, by these kids. But what you see there is, I mean, really an image of the unclean in my mind. Because you have these kids who are, are on drugs. They have, you know, STDs. They're impoverished. And it causes you as a disciple of Christ, you know, not only to say, hey, what am I preaching? What am I teaching? But how is my action? I mean, those two things go together. How is my healing? Right? 
whether it be in how I spend my money or what are my concerns. I mean, that image there that, that even exists, when you think there of the gospel that you proclaim, those type of images have to come to your mind to the point where you say, preaching the gospel is an action. It's something of going out and proclaiming and then backing it up with love. And I always will think probably of those, of those kids just in, in my mind, a state of utter, you know, utter, utter unclean, right? That, that you have people here in terms of needing uh, to be touched by the gospel. And it really asks ask us as a church, and this is where we're going to bring it to a close, it asks us as a church is we are in a unique opportunity. I mean, I remember hearing in the church business meeting the type of resources that we're collecting in January, whether it be physically, geographically, the things that the Lord's bring to us, or as Americans, I mean, this is a pretty affluent church. I mean, you guys got money. And it's the truth. You guys got money, um, especially with those metal backgrounds. And it really forces you to ask, well, if I'm one of these, if I'm one of these servants, then what am I teaching and preaching in word, but then also in action? Where am I healing? Am I modeling Christ and going out and touching people and touching their lives by proclaiming this gospel of grace? And as I proclaim this gospel of grace, do my actions, the way I handle my resources to the way that I love people, does that proclaim and verify the authority of the Lord Jesus. That's the last thing I'm going to say, is when Jesus preached, the reason why he healed is because he wanted to verify the authority of his teaching, specifically verify the authority of him as the Son of God. And when we as the church go out into a world and preach a gospel, a gospel of love and of mercy and of God's grace and of healing, and then we live our lives in a fashion that we don't produce the healing in both the physical you know, and the spiritual, that one isn't verified for another, you can only imagine the world. It doesn't diminish the work of Christ in any bit. Nothing you can do can diminish, you know, the one who sits at the right hand of the Father. But when you're the outside world and you're looking at us as the church, and we're proclaiming this, but we lack the type of healing that Jesus used to verify that we are the ones who have been moved and saved by Christ, that they cannot look into our lives and see how we are just burning with the desire to heal people, then you can only imagine, you know, and you can't be surprised when they come and question the authority of your gospel. So if you can bow your head and close with me in prayer. Uh, Father, thank you, Lord, for providing us um, with your spirit um, in, in being able to go through this passage. I pray, Father, that uh, the words that I proclaim are, are, are simply a reflection of my lungs producing air uh, through my vocal cords and my lips. But it is by the breath of the Spirit, Father, that these words, that this um, toiling Lord with the text can produce life within the hearts of, uh, Father, the sinners, Lord, uh, the hearts, Father, to call those rebels away from their rebellion and into submission, Father, uh, to see, Lord, the type of destruction that our own self-governments produce uh, as we try to be kings of our lives. And, Father, I pray that this very same Spirit who enables people to turn uh, from their depravity, Father, who's able to take such a wretched sinner like me and proclaim the gospel from these lips, that very same spirit may move within your church to proclaim a gospel to the world of salvation through Christ, through the work of the Paschal Lamb, who heals us, Lord, who looks upon us and says, be clean, Father, who looks upon us and says, get out, and who looks upon us, Father, and says, stand up, take your mattress, and go. Father, I pray that very same spirit may move this church to love with the authority, Father, of this very spirit. In your name I pray, amen.
Before we close, uh, do we have any announcements? No announcements today? Everybody heard that? There's a family discipleship after Pat Bless today. So um, we're excited to have uh, Pastor Chris back. And so we're so excited that uh, we'll let him close us in prayer after which, uh, after which the worship team can do their closing song. Thank you, Lord. All right, so what we heard from the Word of God, we've already seen enough and heard enough of God's example and how we're going to live our lives after.